Welcome back to the Policy Biz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode of the show, we look back at a fairly old project from the BBC. So I'm joined by two guests, Joe Sharp and Mike Orwell, to talk about an old project, the BBC's Great British Class Calculator. Again, it's a fairly old project. It's a few years old at this point, but I thought it would be interesting to talk with them because when this project came out, over the first day of its release, it received more than six million views. And if you are trying to get your data or your visualizations in front of more and more people, I think this serves as a good case study of how to make your content more engaging and more visible to people. So we talk about their process uh, at the time. We talk about things that they may have done differently. We talk about the data that they collected. And of course, we talk about what Joe and Mike are doing now in different spaces of visualizing data. Now, before we get to the interview, I wanna let you know that my new book, Data Visualization in Excel, has been out for about a month. I hope you'll pick it up at Amazon or at Routledge or wherever you get your books. It is a step-by-step guide to creating more than 20 intermediate to advanced graphs in Excel. And if you have the book, thanks so much for picking it up. And I hope you will consider leaving a rating or a review on the websites where you pick that book up. If you would like to learn more about the book, like to learn more about what's in it, check out policyviz.com where I have a whole separate page on the site dedicated to the book. But to the show this week, here is my conversation with Joe and Mike about the BBC's Great British Class Calculator and lots of other topics. Mike and Joe, good to meet you guys. Welcome to the show. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Mike, how are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, not too bad. Excellent, excellent. Uh, excited to chat with you both about a, a relatively old project, but kind of exciting nonetheless and curious to see and hear your thoughts on it and what you're working on now. So I thought we would start with introductions. Seems to be the best place to meet new people. And then uh, and then we could talk about the, the work that you've done and the work that you're doing now. Um, so Mike, I thought we'd start with you. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're working on these days. Sure. My name's uh, Michael Orwell. I'm a digital media consultant, um, producer and executive producer. Um, my academic background is in biological science and bioethics. But I started my career in the music business, actually, um, before transitioning to working in digital interactive with the BBC. Um, at the BBC, I was part of a team that developed a, a mass participation experiment platform. Uh, called Lab UK, which uh, collaborated with leading academic researchers and um, the BBC audience themselves to try and answer some big questions in psychology and uh, society. Um, I also worked on a factual content platform called I Wonder and became the factual commissioning editor for that. Um, and then I left the BBC in 2018. And since then, I've been working with various organisations and digital production agencies and companies to tell stories in lots of different ways. So mm. um, I'm working now um, with uh, Marshmallow Laser Feast, um, making big immersive uh, room scale stories um, with a sort of history flavor. Um, before that, I've, I've worked on m- music videos and um, various uh, interactive um, and sort of cutting edge technology storytelling methods. Right. Wow. So around the block. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Uh, Joe, um, what's your 
What's your origin story, superhero style? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm currently uh, founder and uh, creative director of a digital design studio called Applied Works. Um, I studied graphic design at Central St. Martins in London in the 90s, graduated from my degree in 1997. Uh, at that point, um, kind of interested in motion graphics, film and video, time-based type work. Um, did various things on graduation in that area before founding Applied Works in 2005. Um, we weren't really a, a studio doing much in the way of data visualization until a couple of projects came along uh, in the mid, uh, well, 2010 was the first one. So the Times, the British newspaper, uh, got in touch at the time when the iPad was first released. And they were also putting up a paywall um, and they were the first UK newspaper to to launch an iPad edition. Um, and all of their infographics to that point on the on the main website were flash based. So they immediately had a, an issue of, of migrating mm -hmm. content to this new device. Um, we spent about a year working with them on, on a range of different um, data projects. Um, really interesting relationship that, that really set us on that path of, of doing more work in data. Uh, the second project that really sort of cemented the, that direction of travel was for um, EDF, uh, for the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics, working with uh, BBDO, who are, were EDF's um, advertising agency partner. Um, and we developed a real-time energy dashboard uh, that monitored the um, energy consumption of key venues at the Olympics, uh, the Olympic mm -hmm. Park, and um, also Tower Bridge and London Eye. That was a much more complicated project involving installing smart meters and, and things of that nature. And then, yeah, more recently, uh, working with organizations like Chatham House, Climate Arc, uh, Green Economy Coalition on uh, lots of projects to do with environmental and sustainability data. Um, one project uh, that really probably that represents the most complex of these types of projects is uh, uh, for Chatham House called ResourceTrade.Earth, which takes... Uh, I think last count, nearly 50 million um, data points on resource trade between different countries around the world. So you can search for, let's say, anything from uh, fossil fuels to fertilizer to peanuts to sheet metals and um, explore trends in, in, in uh, trade data. Uh, and yeah, so uh, that's me. I also teach one day a week at Kingston University. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. That's right. We were we were talking before we recorded about teaching in person. Yeah. Back to being in person, how much nicer it is to like see students in person rather than the. It's it's. I don't think we appreciated how difficult it was until we we came back face to face. Like there's only so many mirror boards and group <laughs> video calls yes. that you can do, and it's yeah. just you know intermediately it's it's a kind of okay for the auditorial, but it's really difficult to yeah to maintain. Um, yeah. Uh, long term so yeah Absolutely. it's brilliant to be back face to face really enjoying it so it's interesting because you both um sound like didn't really start from a data in your in your professional work start from a database and or data data position or data work and sort of have evolved into those kind of in that area so let's kind of flash back to this great british class calculator project that i think now is about nine ten years old something like that um, I want to talk about that briefly, and then we can maybe talk about your, your some of your current projects. Can you talk a little bit about where this project came from? I mean, at the time, it had like six, seven million views within like its first day. It was a hugely shared project. You know, where did the project come out and, and how did the, the collaboration work? I'm, I'm guessing, Mike, you were on the BBC side and, and Joe on the, on the design uh, development side. So 
how how did this collaboration work? And then and then when you finally sort of got that project working, how how was the collaboration process between the the two different groups of I'm guessing kind of on the journalism side and then the the data side. So I don't know, Mike, maybe maybe it's best to start with you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, this all came out of the the BBC Lab UK um, project, which was a, a brilliant idea um, that uh, that that was had. Um, that people like doing kind of quizzes, um, like based on um, science programming that the BBC was making. Um, and one researcher came to us and said, I would love to see how people are answering these questions that, you know, that are to do with um, a program about the evolution of disgust, actually. Um, I'd love to see it and I'd love to see how they answer differently depending on their demographics. And so we thought, well, yeah, we could probably make we could make something that stores that data and then you could analyze it and you could find something brand new out about something we didn't know. Mm. Um, and then we decided to turn this whole thing into a platform and realized that if one person completed multiple surveys, then you'd start to build up a picture, an anonymous picture of their data across lots of domains, say, you know, the way that they spend money, the way that their their upbringing has influenced their personality, or the way that they, the things that they find disgusting or don't find disgusting in, in, in society. Um, and so it becomes a very powerful linked database. So this was, this was a big kind of project that we started in 2008. Um, and one of those projects was the Great British Class Survey which was a collaboration with the Current Affairs Unit at the BBC. They wanted to sort of understand if the old idea of social class was wrong in, in Britain or was outdated or outmoded. Um, and they wanted to see if there were other things that were more pertinent for working out which classes people sat in. So we did, we did this. We, we created with um, two, well, a whole team of, of social scientists um, a battery of questions and interactive tests and things, understanding people's cultural consumption patterns and all manner of different ways of looking at, at social class um, and collected, I think, about 160,000 cases of data from people, which is not too shabby. Um, yeah. And then uh, the academic researchers took that data and and then just thought about it for a very long time. <laughs> and <laughs> in that, I'm afraid to say in that, in that time frame, the TV commissioning rounds came and went and the current affairs team said, well, where's, where's this brand new snapshot of British society? And we said, well, I think they're still working on it. Um, and so they kind of lost interest, which was a shame. But, you know, fast forward maybe six months or so, maybe six to nine months, um, the team came back with a, a structure of an analysis which said that there looks like there's these seven distinct clusters in British society. Um, and I should say we had already done a recruited sample as well where we had got a sort of demographic spread of people to take the test as well. About, I think it was over a 1,000 people and then we use these two data sets basically to work out, extrapolate what the entire uh, society looked like. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was fascinating stuff. It was a brand new way of looking at British society. 
but we didn't really have any way of getting it out there. So um, we pitched for a little bit of money from 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 the BBC coffers, um, and you know that's when we got in touch with um, Applied Works, who were doing some interesting stuff with data, and you know, and I kind of thought, well, maybe you know we could visualize it in some interesting ways. And I was very interested in um, information is beautiful and all that that mm-hmm. kind of area. Um, and I was interested to see what the, the designers and Joe could do at Applied Works. And, and I guess that's where, you know, that's that's how we kind of started the collaboration. Right. So, Joe, you're now brought in. You have this, like, treasure trove of data. Um, maybe it's worth just quickly explaining to, to listeners here what the final product looked like, but how, and then, but then more interestingly, like, how did you arrive at that solution? Yeah, so the final product was uh, a simplified set of questions that would approximate you or, or give you a closest match to a, one of these new seven class groups. Um, so it, it would ask you, there are three um, groups of information or groups of questions. The first are to do with your financial um, situation. The second is your social um, and the third is your cultural interests. And so the quiz asks you a, a handful of questions that approximates um, some answers that will put, place you in one of these class groups. Um, so you're given a result and you're then uh, um, offered the opportunity to, to explore each of these seven class groups and how you relate to them. So there's some demo, there's quite a lot of editorial information in, in the calculator itself. Um, yeah. And so at the beginning, I, I was looking back, actually, it's, it was quite a long intermittent process where I think we were first talking to Mike late 2011. Um, we were, um, I, I think we always enjoy opportunities where we can get involved with the raw data and, and really get in the trenches with the client and, and start to look at um, what's going on with the data. We were, we were opening uh, this, this SPSS software, which is really complex. <laughs> um, social science stuff, looking at cluster <laughs> maps, trying to yeah. understand what was going on. And I think at that point we were we were sort of overflowing with ideas of you know we could have heat maps and we could have all sorts of demographic information, and some of that stuff came out subsequently through the BBC. But I think we we quickly came to the conclusion that the quiz needed to be simple. You need to be able to get through it quite quickly. You need to be able to understand or anticipate what was going to happen as you were using the quiz. And I think what made it particularly successful was it was really shareable. I mean we were tapping mm-hmm. into this kind of British obsession of class. And um, I think for me, the, the most successful bit is finding the right line between the serious research and this this kind of slightly obsessive uh, uh, thing we have in the UK with the class system. Um, right. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's kind of how it evolved. But it was, it was several phases of work. Um, we did a, a prototype initially in mid 2012, I think, Mike, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, where we'd sort of resolved the project in, in a way, and then it it went away for about six months. While this, I think we had six class groups at that point. Um, and then I was looking back, I got an email that says, "Please call Mike. GBCS is alive," <laughs> and <laughs> and the deadline was two weeks away. So we had to take this prototype that we'd developed six months before, and rapidly turn it into like a finished product meeting all the BBC accessibility guidelines, ready to be embedded on the BBC News website and ready to support this kind of wave of um, uh, yeah, news and, and interest that it generated. Right. So I, I want to flash forward, but before I, I do that, 
what was your reaction when it took off the way it did? I mean, I think even now, I mean, we've had a, you know, 10, 15 years or so of experience of interactive visualizations, immersive narratives, quizzes, all these sorts of things, you know, some things are old, some things have stayed the same. It is, I think, still pretty rare when you come out with a visualization that just explodes and kind of takes over. What was your reaction when you had this 24 hours of millions upon millions of views? I mean, I would say what was different to other types of um, visualizations was the fact that we had picked these indicative questions, which could sort of shove you into one of the categories of the research, mm -hmm. which was quite, a, which was a novel thing. I think um, the BBC News website had had like tax calculators and things like that, where you could type in how much you spend on this, that and the other, and it would spit out some sort of result at the end but this was the first time when you'd put your own kind of information into something and it would tell you something brand new you didn't know about yourself so right. it was kind of i think you know I, I might overplay a bit that it was hard to kind of get people interested in this but i think once the news team saw the the prototype they they said this is going to you know completely catch fire this is going to go off and and you know they to be fair to them they got behind it and made a lot of other editorial content around it as well, and right. um, and it and it did very well. Um, but I mean it was it was a hilarious first twenty four hours um, <laughs> where I was getting phoned up by people I'd vaguely met like three years ago saying hey right. hey come on I really I need your sociologists I need to speak I need to get them on my show you know and all this sort of yeah. stuff. Um, and it was just great for them to, for a bit of a Cinderella sort of subject like sociology to have, you know, be headline news for a week. It was, yeah. it was, it was brilliant. Yeah. And Joe, were you just, were you and your team just kind of like sitting back, drinking pints, just watching the <laughs> traffic, just being like, this is a to win. To some extent. And... <laughs> I mean, it took us by surprise. The first thing I heard was I woke up and uh, listened to the radio and there was a news story about it. Yeah. Um, and then there was there's a satirical news quiz called Have I Got News For You? We're just watching that and this, it came on there and there were parodies. I'd never had before or since our work parodied. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it really, it really took us by surprise. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it elicited all this kind of emotions in people. And I think it just, it was one of those things where it just everybody sort of was sort of talking about it. Um, yeah. You'd see it on social media and you'd see, Something like a quarter of all views came from social media, mm. um, despite the fact that it was on the BBC homepage. So it was it was generating a lot of um, yeah a lot of interest, and yeah, it yeah. completely took us by surprise. Yeah. So let's flash forward now because you've both done a variety of different things, Joe. You've you sounds like you at the time maybe like your feet were getting wet with data, but now it's mm -hmm. like up to your up to your eyeballs. Uh, Mike, you've worked in sound and video and other sorts of things. And the world of data visualization and data has changed considerably over the last decade in many ways, but also in some ways is kind of the same. I mean, quizzes and those sorts of things tend to do really well when they're done well. And I'm curious if this project came back to your desk today, what would you do differently? And I don't know where to start with that question. Maybe that's, maybe we'll start with Joe, like just off the cuff, like, would you change the core visualization or do you feel like the way the, the basic, I mean, I'm not asking you to redesign the whole thing mm. and, you know, <laughs> in the podcast, but just 
are there certain things that you would fundamentally change? I'm not sure I'd fundamentally change it, yeah. given it was so successful. Um, right. Yeah, sure. They, right. They, obviously, the social media landscape's changed a little bit yeah. since then. I think the main thing, looking back, is it, it it's of its time in terms of how it looks. It was mm-hmm. it was at that weird point between before uh, responsive web layouts became a thing. We had a separate mobile. There was a separate mm-hmm. BBC mobile website. So right. we designed a completely separate interface for mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's set in Arial. I think there was no, this is pre-web fonts. Um, mm-hmm. It was certainly pretty rigorously tested for accessibility, but I think, it, again, we'd probably be looking at that aspect of it. In terms of the core visualization, I'm, I'm not sure. It's difficult to know without having the, the sort of Mike's perspective on what the client would yeah. do differently, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Jay's right about um, social media. You know, the way of collecting data from social interactions would be interesting. I mean, one of the things that, not a regret, but was certainly something I thought about afterwards was, um, wouldn't it be great to gather this data as well and mm-hmm. and, um, and be able to do some analyses on that? Because, you know, you had people doing it from all over the world um, as well as all over the country. Right. Um, and so it would be fascinating to, you know, just perhaps take an IP address and then look at what people were putting in, you know, and, right. to, and to sort of have a look at that. But I certainly think there was a lot of novel things in that project. Um, and the the souvenir, um, uh, we dynamically created your result, which could then be shared as a, as a JPEG on social platforms. You know, that was like red hot innovation at the time but you know that's now become a fairly standard thing um but that certainly helped and uh sort of you know um spread and disseminate the 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 content i think but there's so much more you could do with with the social platforms you've got nowadays so right i think that would be very interesting that's a good point i think you could probably do something more sophisticated and more unique with the the share visualization Mm -hmm. with, with technology available today Again, the the user puts their personal information in. They click run, go, whatever, and they get their their personal results and creating something that they could immediately share to to one of the to to the different social platforms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I wonder whether you think it would today, whether you think it would it would still work as kind of a standalone kind of dashboard like that's right now it kind of sits as its own like digital dashboard um but do you think now things have changed sufficiently enough where it would need to be sit within a larger narrative or does does that kind of project still work as its own separate standalone page don't know if you have any thoughts on this mike but i'm I'm recalling how it was a standalone quiz yeah and there were additional tabs kept uh coming day after day after day is the more the more attention it got and then a lot of this other analysis and deeper analysis came along that supported it um so yeah i think maybe if if there would have been a more cohesive plan of how to to sort of deliver all that content mm-hmm. together and also you bear in mind we're in the within the bbc news website so um right. you know there's all of the the surrounding navigation that sits there and yeah i don't know if you've got anything else to add mike yeah i mean i think the original idea was just to have a series of articles, you know, flat articles with some nice visualizations in it. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, the the fact that it could be embedded um, 
and I think it told its own story fairly well. Actually, I, I think it, it wherever it turned up in the BBC News uh, website, I think it 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 didn't require that much other stuff going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. It's an interesting question about um, what other sort of surrounding narrative it would need nowadays. I mean, I, I think what's changed since um, twenty thirteen is. There's so much more of an emphasis on identity politics, and you know that was sort of curiously missing mm. from from that analysis or that way of looking at society. Um, and now it would be very hard to ask those sort of questions about society without some of that identity politics coming into it. Right, Joe. You mentioned the accessibility piece, and I'm and I'm curious about that in its own right. But I'm also curious about Mike. To your point about the icons that were used. Um, at the time, and obviously there's been a lot more attention both on accessibility for digital products, but also in the last two, three, four years on how we represent people and communities with the icons. It was interesting to me because um, I just finished Nigel Holmes's book, Joyful Infographics, and he makes a point about race and identities and, and icons. And he just argues, you know, don't worry about using black and white and, you know, trying to match skin color, just use blue. Like there are no blue people, so just use blue. And it turns out that in this project, you guys use blue. And I'm just curious, like to kind of pull all these different kind of identity threads together. Like, I guess the question is pretty broad, but like, where do you think things might've changed on that end? Taking that project today, do you think you would have changed some of your decisions around icons and color and uh, maybe even accessibility discussions would be different today than it was 10 years ago? Should I say that one, Mike? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I gave some broad sort of like, guide, well, not guidelines, but, you know, I sort of said what the, I thought the territory should be, but you guys ran with it. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I think how we ended up with Blue, I mean, yeah, clearly we wanted to re retain a certain ambiguity of ethnicity and, and although we had some demographic information, average age, predominant gender, types of um, occupations within each class group, they were really, you know, there's no real easy way to represent um, right. that that many people in one character. But um, it, how we arrived at Blue, I can't recall, mm -hmm. <laughs> other than we had the BBC <laughs> colour palette, we right. had colours for each of the economic, social and um, cultural um, elements of the graphic, and we had orange for the user, and it was kind of, uh, yeah, a process yeah. of seeing what looked good and what worked well. Um, right. We have done a project more recently um, with Chatham House called Tribes of Europe, which follows a similar um, uh, mechanic. It was a, a attitude to Europe. Um, Chatham House conducted a survey in 10 countries in Europe, 10,000 respondents, um, and it was to challenge the idea that people were generally just pro or anti-EU or pro or anti-Europe. And so they proposed six different tribes um, and at either end, you would have so federalists uh, on one end and uh, EU rejectors on the other end. But all of this nuance in between of people with different attitudes to uh, these, um, you know, uh, related topics. And we, we, the, that one was, we, we didn't have the kind of leeway of um, wit and humour and kind of not taking itself too seriously. We, they mm. had to be witty, but they had to. I mean, they were. There's some pretty um, serious questions that we were asking. We um, commissioned an, an illustrator called Belle Meller, and she produced these beautiful um, 
group illustrations um, around the European star. Um, and they were, again, quite ambiguous, but they had they had attitude. So th- mm-hmm. they were kind of austerity rebels, for example, and that they were kind of trying to change a wheel underneath the star. And they were, as I said, e-rejectors with a wrecking ball. And these kinds of, um, it was more attitude uh, than than demographic information. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point of view, we did, we did do a project that was quite similar that that um, we did approach differently, actually. Yeah, I think it depends on the context of the subject matter. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting in the way you phrase it, kind of the fun, uh, more whimsical piece versus mm-hmm. something that's more serious and and demands that. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike, I wanted since Joe, you you were able to talk about this more recent project. Mike, I wanted to ask you, you have a more recent project you wanted to maybe uh, uh, talk about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I think. A lot of those sort of projects from back then, you know, feed into to sort of some of the interests that, that I have now of um, this idea of nonlinear storytelling and um, and also a kind of voting or, you know, selection kind of process. So I made a, an interactive graphic novel um, called Tell Me Your Secrets, which was based in the Second World War. Um, uh, it was a sort of little-known kind of story of uh, diplomacy and uh, espionage that went on, um, but I, I let the the users inhabit the, the the main character and try and make the decisions with the negotiations with the United States um, that that basically saved Britain's bacon, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and but we recorded a lot of the, the decisions that people were making, and the, you know. We made a little piece of content based on who decided to do what, you know, and what who was influenced by what decision, mm. um, and you know, and that's sort of gone on into other types of, you know, I, I mentioned before we made an interactive music video um, for, for for a for a Chinese client um, where we allowed people to vote for how they wanted the video to change in real time, mm. um, and then we had to demonstrate in real time with graphical overlays and things like which what was the more popular thing at that at the given time and so i think there's something really compelling about people being able to a have agency to change the story or or to bend the story to the way that they would like to to see it um but also to sort of show people what's happening so that people have this understanding of of this, there's this dynamic situation going on that we can see it changing um, because of the selections we're making. So right. I think a lot of this stuff has really influenced, you know, a wide variety of stuff, not even just sort of social science stuff, but all sorts of ways of, of telling stories. Yeah. Terrific. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on. I know it was a little bit of a trip down memory lane, um, <laughs> but, uh, but definitely interesting to see how you, how you think about it now and, and what the process was like. Um, so thanks to you both for coming on the show. It's really, uh, really great to chat with you. And uh, I'll put links to all the things that you've mentioned so folks can sort of at least take a look at the BBC project, but also I think it'd be interesting to contrast and compare how, how things have changed. Um, so Joe and Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, John. Thank, Thank you, John. Brilliant. Thank you.
Thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoy that. Of course, I hope you'll check out the class calculator. There's a bunch of other links to Joe and Mike's current work and some other pieces that they thought would be interesting to listeners of the show. So check it out over at policyviz.com. And so until next week, which will be the last episode of the PolicyViz podcast for this season, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. A number of people help bring you the PolicyViz podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.